Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. It's been just over a year since Rhode Island legalized marijuana. What's happened since? Is the law living up to its promise to address the harms of the war on drugs? Representative Sherry Cruz, a Pawtucket Democrat, advocated for the law before she joined the General Assembly. She'll give us an update, and she'll talk about the future of McCoy Stadium and the proposed Tidewater Soccer Stadium after this quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with Representative Sherry Cruz, a Pawtucket Democrat who just completed her first year in the State House of Representatives. Welcome. Thank you (laughs) for having me here today, Ed. So begin by just telling us a bit about your life story. Today, you're at the State House with an Ivy League degree from Brown, but you had some struggles getting there, correct? Yes, correct. (laughs) Took a long journey uh, to get to that point. Early on in my life, actually, my father was a custodian at Brown. We worked in uh, the cafeterias, me and my brother, and I was an eighth grade push-out. Went back up my GED as a single mom of four and went through community college and transferred to Brown in my mid-30s. How did you end up with a felony conviction? Am I right it was based on a false allegation? Yes, this is true. Well, this is back, you know, in the height of the war on drugs uh, in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. was no different than anywhere else. There were these, you know, strike forces that went out in communities, and my home was raided. This strike force essentially had charged me with delivery of drugs and selling, which which was false. I knew it was false. It came to find out later that it happened to many other people uh, where this DEA strike force was using essentially fake informants, so Hmm. people to lie under oath to state certain people had sold drugs to them to get convictions. Mm. Um, some people were able to get off. I, unfortunately, was not. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know— Even we, though didn't the informant say uh, that wasn't true, what I said before? Well, afterwards, he After. said that in other people's cases, oh, but not in my case. But, but those were four cases that had attorneys. So they had they had money. 
They had attorneys. Unfortunately, for someone like me, a single mom on welfare, that wasn't going to happen. I, I, I was going to go through that criminal legal mill. For my case, I was pregnant with my daughter, and I was faced with five years in prison or take the deal. So don't fight it. At the time, they were like, it's your only one. You'll be okay. And taking that plea deal, having that conviction on your record, what impact did that have on your prospects for getting a job? Oh, it had a lot of impact <laughs> because, you know, when you applied for a job and they ran that background check, that came up. I know for myself and many others, once you know you fill out an application that's going to come up, it deters you from actually looking for employment put, to putting that out there because you're really – you're trying to move in silence now and make it and survive. And so for myself – it was going back to school, getting an education. That's the time where, you know, I had my GED and I went back to community college and just continued to do that. But then spent a lot of time in volunteer roles where it wasn't asked of me what hmm. my background was and was able to really advance and hone in on my advocacy and my volunteerism. So how did that experience shape your desire to run for office, you know, and to pass legislation up at the state house? One of the things that inspired me the most that both my parents were also, they were formerly incarcerated, also impacted by the criminal legal system. And, you know, in Rhode Island for many, many years, there was a felony disenfranchisement. So they couldn't vote. Mm. I couldn't vote because of that criminal conviction until about 2005, myself and many others around the state came together who had criminal legal convictions under open doors and other organizations to advocate for that right to vote. So in 2006, that had passed. And I think for me, that was the first time like, oh, I have a voice, learned about this democracy, learned that, you know, people have that right to vote and you can shape who and what, you know, happens in our state. And so you weren't in the assembly when Rhode Island legalized marijuana in 2022, but you did advocate for the bill, including measures to expunge marijuana-related convictions and create an equitable system for handing out the retail licenses to sell marijuana. So what's your assessment of the law one year later? One of the big, you know, wins a year later is that automatic clearance of records for people with cannabis possessions. The court has done a great job. They announced recently 23,000, even more than when we were advocating, we expect it. 23,000 people, Rhode Islanders, have had their marijuana convictions Possession, right? Uh, expunged. Are there going to be more? Yes, yes, there's going to be more. And when we were advocating, and we had a lot of meetings with the courts and the AG's office, and, you know, we broke it down like, how would this look, this tiered process? How can we get as many up front as possible? And that was the simple possession charge because we knew when there were charges or convictions that had ancillary charges along with them or convictions, it would be harder for the court to kind of pick and choose within five charges or convictions to pull out that one. Right, right. So they started with that simple hmm. um, possession. And if someone has a marijuana conviction, how do they know if their record's been expunged yet? There's, you know, several ways, at least for myself, when I meet with somebody, you know, we go on to the public portal just to see if it's still there, even though that's not always accurate, that's not a place, but also just going down to the court and, mm -hmm. and checking with the clerk. Also, if you go to get your BCI at mm -hmm. the attorney general's office, your background check, you can, you know, 
pay the $5 and they'll give you a printout and you'll see it's there. And it's automatic, right? I mean, you don't have to go fill out a form. That's and that right. was something the advocates wanted, right? That's Yeah, that's exact. That was the main reason, at least for my part. So there was a big coalition we came together who's been fighting for legalization, patient rights for many years. And we all came together as a coalition. And that was the big thing for us who've been directly impacted. So on the automatic clearance front, you know, we're really happy. It's, it keeps moving. The court, you know, put out a release, like highlighting what they've done, which is exciting. And now, you know, working on now with the Cannabis Control Commission, we've got, you know, our people in there with Kim Ahern, who, you know, she's been on the ground, too, for many years. And I've sat in meetings with her for many years with yeah, criminal legal yeah. reform. Yeah. Speaking of that commission, the legislation had called for the governor to to send the nominees to the Cannabis Control Commission for confirmation 40 days after the bill passed last May. But it went almost a year before Governor McKee submitted the nominees on May 17th of this year. What what impact did that delay have? I think it just it pushes us back. I mean, we want to get closer to getting it up and running, the social equity piece, start giving back to the communities. Tell us about how Rhode Island's marijuana legalization law compares to others in terms of the social equity provisions. What are those and, and how, where do we stand compared to other states? Yeah. Well, I know for Rhode Island, the social equity piece was one, we knew that this was hopefully, at least on the business side, to give people who, one, been impacted, who've been criminalized, locked out of employment, housing, um, and just being able to survive, would have an opportunity to be in the business. People who've been employed many years because of that conviction would be able now to be able to work within that business, be a part of a co-op, which was something that was very different here in Rhode Island from other um, states and legalization. Yeah, we have worked with co-ops, right? That's correct. So right now we have co-ops building of directly impacted people here in the state, gearing up for that social equity license, which that delay obviously delayed these groups. Um but one of the key things that we have to make sure is implemented is that the resources and the funding is there to help them hmm. get into Because these are marginalized communities. And that was the whole intent is to get these marginalized communities into the business and be able to repair that harm and give back. Yeah, just give us the overview of how many licenses are going to be given out and how many will go to communities impacted by the war on drugs. Some are set aside, right, for That's correct. those communities. That's my understanding. Three are set aside for the social equity, and then there's a larger number for for everyone else. So it's like six and then three for those co-ops and right, social right. equity. So it's, it's not a large number. We're hoping, obviously, more. But again, this is about quality and not quantity. So we want to make sure we start up right. Especially it's the first time for many people in business itself. So they're creating business plans. They're trying to find the resources. They're working with cities and towns around zoning. So there's a lot of things to navigate, especially, you know, for people who are getting into this business that this isn't necessarily something they've ever had an opportunity to do. Those social equity licenses couldn't be issued until the Cannabis Commission was formed, right? This is correct, yeah. And there's also an advisory um, board that still is that formed the advisory board no (laughs) we're still we we and and for us at least from our advocacy point we provided some names nominations and you know people who've been impacted we want to make sure that somebody who's been impacted by this who is from rhode island in one of those communities that were hard hit 
are there on that board and in that work to make sure they advocate. Yeah, yeah. What's your message to the governor about the forming the advisory board? We hope we can get it along quicker. We sent some nominations. Please consider the fact that somebody who has lived life experience and has been directly impacted in the community is one of those picks. What method do you think the commission should use to hand out the new licenses? I I know there was talk of a lottery. How do you think it should work? The lottery system may work against many of our, our groups because it is by chance. It's if you get certain things done. And if there's more of others, we're a small group. So what's the chance we're going to get picked out of that lottery when there's more numbers? So we're hoping they move away from that and really look at the merits and the requirements that they start to look at. Are they directly impacted? Are they from the community? And they put those before some random lottery system. I I was asking you how Rhode Island compares to other states. Was the promise that we would have a more progressive uh, system than other states? That was the hopes for us is that we're a small state, we're close in proximity, and that we could really do more with it. And has it lived up to that promise? Uh, the jury's still out. I'm, I'm hoping, you know, giving people chances because, you know, we, we've seen some delays. But, yeah, I'm hoping for the best. Tell me what it's been like to work with Representative Leonella Felix. We, we've talked around the podcast, another legislator who has a drug conviction on her record. Have you two collaborated on any of the criminal justice legislation? Almost definitely. Well, as an advocate, it was instrumental to have someone in there. And I know it was inspiring for me. And one of the inspirations for actually running is to have someone else there with lived experience. So it was exciting to come in and really do that on the inside and work on that. So tell me about the time when you and Representative Felix were on Good Morning America. Oh, wow. That was exciting. I I still can't believe it. We were outreached by Good Morning America because they saw our stories of, you know, coming up with criminal legal records and now in the state house and our journeys. And it was an awesome time because we got to show them our community and let them see some of, you know, what we're representing and who we're fighting for, but also to on a national stage to show like this is important. I started out the podcast, you know, we would hide or move in silence. And here we are moving loudly and proudly to say, guess what? That experience matters. It's unfortunately an American experience, right? Because of the overcriminalization and, and incarceration in our country. So it really was great to see that, you know, that they were interested to highlight that. And since you're a Pawtucket rep, I've got to ask you what you think of the Tidewater Project. Do you support the public funding for that? No. (laughs) What it is, is it's a great project, recreation, but I think the time we have in Pawtucket, especially with homelessness, we we had people under the bridge I was going to visit who were, you know, evicted from housing. Like when we're talking about our resources and our public money, I think it should be on quality of life and not recreation at this point in time. I think between the city and the state, it's $45.5 million that would go into the project. Are you concerned about the ability of fortuitous partners to line up the necessary funding? I am concerned. I don't I don't know if they have that, if, especially if they're asking for the public funds. And and it's the funds, we, like I said, we need. This is a distressed community, especially mine in Woodlawn and why I ran, because I, I saw over decades of it just going down and the resources being taken out. So it was troubling that those things weren't done first before, you know, this project and putting our public dollars into that over 
again, quality of life for our families. Yeah, if there's 45 and a half million in public money available, where would you put it? Oh, I definitely put it in housing and education. You know, Slater Junior High in my community and my alum has a dirt field where the kids sit and play. And I'm like, how is this happening? Their basketball court hasn't been paved in decades. So so what's going on here? And we're doing some fundraising in the community, but we got $45 million. Can you share a little, you know, to just give kids feel good about where they are and where they're going to school and, and resources and education? So definitely that and housing and with our stock of housing we're seeing now with the evictions. I, I, I go to see housing now and I can't even believe it's habitable and they're charging $1,400, $1,500 and it's very frustrating. So hopefully maybe some funding to help if there's some good landlords and they're struggling to you know improve the quality of their housing. Provide it to them. Also help with rental assistance. Also help just to get people on their feet because I was one of those people, and it's possible if we give the right supports that we can get people out of poverty and we all win. What do you make of the news that a billionaire has proposed coming in to try to save McCoy Stadium, uh, even though it's planned for the new high school? Well, I think it's exciting because I got calls and calls from constituents asking why isn't the mayor at least meeting with him? Because when we lost McCoy, it was told to many of us in the community that the administration tried and there was nothing they can do. Well, here's something, right? So I think a lot of people, you know, wanted to make sure, like, at least meet and hear it out and, you know, know what's going on because it's still a possibility. I think many things, too, I hear in our community about that site for the new high school. People want a new high school. There's still some riff about, you know, there's two sides and the rivalry, east-west, Shea-Tolman. But the fact is we need, you know, updated facilities. But is McCoy the place for it? And people talk about, you know, the city just bought the Apex building and the Sawyer School, and it's central to the city, downtown. Why isn't the high school built there? So I'm getting all of these things, really great feedback from, you know, Pawtucket residents, constituents who've been there all their lives. I've had, you know, former vice principals saying the same thing. And wanting to save McCoy and being told about things years ago about the engineering and that space of McCoy, they had to fill in. They wouldn't be able to hold that structure for the stadium when that was being built. So I think a lot of us, our mind is, what does that look like for a high school, which is a much more, you know, grand project? So what are they going to do for that? Have they looked into that? So I think a lot of people are skeptical in Pawtucket, like, is it even possible for a new high school on that space? But also, too, people are calling out for the mayor to meet with this billionaire who and wants to save it. Yeah. yeah, and at least see see what it is and make it public and transparent. You just completed your first legislative session. What have you enjoyed the most about your first year at the State House, and what has frustrated you the most? Well, I think what was most surprising pleasantly was just the collegiality. I was very fortunate to come in at a time where there was some new faces, really, you know, pushing for some of the things that I care about, leadership in place that that cared about it. It was just like the perfect, you know, mix. We had a speaker who 
wanted to work on housing. That was his priority this year. That's right. And I was fortunate to come because that was my priority. When I got into the General Assembly, you know, they ask about committees. I'm like, housing, municipal government, and judiciary. Those were my areas. And, and I got on those committees. And I felt so fortunate. You know, you think when you're on the outside, it might be cutthroat. or It really isn't that, that way. It really is a team mentality. Like I said, I don't know if that's how it was in past leadership. But in this, it really is a team mentality. And everybody's listening to everybody and really trying to move that needle forward. And the most frustrating part? Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I guess on the flip side, too, the same thing is like, you know, I'm someone who's like, oh, incremental change. But I would hope that I was able to make a little more than incremental change. You know, the frustrating thing also is there's advocates and people coming in. And I was a little frustrated they didn't come more to us legislators. Like for myself and Rep. Felix, we have some good committees. We don't necessarily, like back in the day, have to water something down before it gets to the state house. Don't do those negotiations before it gets there. Mm. Try us. We're here. We fought to get here, and we've been impacted. And guess what? It might just pass. Mm. <laughs> Reach for the stars. It might pass. All right, Representative Sherry Cruz, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. And if you like the podcast, do us a favor. Follow the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.